Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we're going to be talking about 3 Nephi 27 through 4 Nephi. At the beginning, 3 Nephi 27, if you had to teach just this chapter, Bryce, what would you say are the most important things in 3 Nephi 27? Well, I love that we get to hear from his own lips what the gospel is, because in the church today, we often put so many bricks on our backs, and we just assume that the gospel is all these things. And yes, there's room in the gospel for them, but I love Jesus just says, let me give you the simplicity of the gospel message. We're going to hear Jesus say, this is my gospel. And it's just a short little, a few verses. And so I love the fact that we get to see this simplified. Everything else has its place, but in its simplest form, this is the gospel that Christ gave us. And it comes in the context This is another day. He goes away, and then he comes back, and he finds them disputing over the name of the church, which is silly. He says, why are you arguing about that? That's such a no-brainer. If it's my church, it has to be called in my name. But then he kind of shifts the whole topic at the very end of that verse. So I'm in 3 Nephi 27, 8. How be it my church, save it be called in my name? If the church be called in Moses' name, then it be Moses' church. If it be called in the name of a man, then it be that man's church. It's not the church of the Mormons, because it's not the church of Mormon. It's not the church of Latter-day Saint. It's the church of Jesus. And that's what President Nelson has been emphasizing. But if it be called in my name, then it is my church. And then this last verse is going to change the whole topic. So we're going to go from what's the name of the church to what is the gospel. So it's his church if it carries his name. And then that last phrase, he's going to shift the topic here, if it so be that they are built on my gospel. And then he's going to define it. So now he's brought up what the gospel is. So look at verse 13. Behold, I have given unto you my gospel, and this is the gospel which I have given unto you. And you can almost put a colon there instead of a dash. This is the gospel which I have given unto you. And then by verse 21, he says, verily, verily, I say unto you, this is my gospel. So those verses, you got to highlight 13 through 21. You've got a bookend here. So in 13, he says, this is my gospel. And then by 21, verily, verily, I say unto you, this is my gospel. So he's bookended it. So what you're going to find between 13 and 21 is Jesus himself telling us what the gospel is. And the church is many, many things. It's missionary work, it's youth programs, it's tithing, it's service and welfare, it's many things. But please listen as the Master tells us from his own lips what the gospel is. So let's go back to 13. I have given unto you my gospel, and this is the gospel which I have given unto you, that I came into the world to do the will of the Father because my Father sent me. And my Father sent me that I might be lifted up upon the cross. So the central point of the gospel is that Jesus came to atone. His atonement is the central part of the gospel. But then he's going to simply say, one of the outgrowths of the atonement is that after I had been lifted up upon the cross, that I might draw all men unto me. 
that as I have been lifted up by men, even so should men be lifted up by the Father. So, Mike, what do we call the lifting up of men by the Father? Yeah, that's the resurrection. So Jesus atoned, and one of the outgrowths of that is that all men and women will be resurrected. So that what? Be judged by our works, whether to good be, or evil. Yeah, to stand before me to be judged of the works. So there it is. Jesus came to carry out an atonement, which will bring to pass the resurrection, which will cause every single human being to stand before God and be judged. You cannot avoid it. You can't run far enough. You can't hide under a big enough mountain. Every single human being will be judged. That is what Jesus did. Now, normally, the thought of that terrorizes our hearts. The thought of standing before God and being judged is a scary thought. So Jesus then says, look, there are three words that can describe you on judgment day. Verse 16 has the first word. You can be guiltless before the Father. So we all sit here and we feel guilt at the thought of being judged by the Father, but the Savior says, the deal I'm offering you, if you take it and live your part of it, when you stand before God, you will be guiltless. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ, is how to be guiltless on judgment day. Have no guilt when you stand before him on judgment day. The second word is in verse 19. So that first word was verse 16. The second word is in verse 19. No unclean thing can enter into his kingdom. Therefore, nothing entereth his rest, save it be those who have washed their garments in my blood. That's what Jesus can do so that on judgment day, you are washed. Now, if you're washed, you're going to be guiltless. So you can be guiltless and washed, or clean is really the word we use most frequently in the church. I want to be clean when I stand before God. Do you remember that dream of Joseph F. Smith? I'm late, but I'm clean. I want to be clean. And then one more word, verse 20, and it's not sanctified. Sanctified is part of what you need to do so that you may stand spotless. Now, Mike, what does that mean to you? To be spotless. What is a spot? And I know that comes up a zillion times in the Old Testament. To, to me, I think it means I'm even shining, like the shining ones. We're totally clean, and it's not us. It's his blood, verse 19, because of this trust that we have. We've been on the way, so we're made like he is. Moroni is going to talk about this, right? We, we will be made like he is. Yeah. I love that verse in Isaiah that says, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. It's because, can you imagine blood on a garment is a spot? And my sin is like that blood on the garment. But he's going to take those spots. Jesus will be wearing red when he comes, symbolic of the fact that he took all of the red off of our clothing, the spots. Can you imagine standing before God, looking down and expecting to see the stains of all of our sins, and they're gone? How would you then feel on Judgment Day? So, are you interested in this deal? How can we be guiltless, washed, and spotless? How can we be shining 
on Judgment Day? How can I, an immortal person who have made so many mistakes in my life, how can I possibly stand before God with no guilt, having washed myself so that I am spotless and clean and shining? Well, let's go back and list. There's five things. I want you to pay attention to the list, but I also want you to pay attention to what he repeats. He doesn't just give us the five. He repeats several of them as if to draw attention to that. So let's go back to verse 16 where we found the word guiltless. It shall come to pass that whoso repenteth. That's one on the list. You have to repent. You're going to recognize this list. You're starting to recognize it now. Where on the list do we put repentance? That's number two. You have to repent. And then what else does he say in verse 16? It shall come to pass that whoso repenteth and is baptized. That's on the list. Covenants, baptism. That's number three on the list. So we have number two and number three, repentance and baptism. And then he says, and if, it, and if he endureth to the end. That's one we also put on the list at number five. So right here in verse 16, we've got three of the five things that I need to do to be guiltless, washed, and spotless on judgment day. I need to repent, I need to be baptized, and I need to endure to the end. All right, now let's jump to verse 19. Let's add one to the list. But notice what he repeats. And no unclean thing can enter into his kingdom. Therefore, nothing enter into his rest, save it be those who have washed their garments in my blood because of their faith. That's number one on the list. Faith and repentance of all their sins. That's a repeat of number two. And their faithfulness unto the end. That's a repeat of number five. So we have faith, repentance, baptism, and enduring to the end. Does that list start to look familiar? Children start to recognize that list. If you ask primary children, do you recognize this list? They'll say, yeah, I had to memorize that list. That's the fourth article of faith. You find it all over the scriptures. It is the gospel. I would say it's really plain in the Book of Mormon. I, you know, it's so basic, but a lot of it is lost, especially in the Old Testament. I mean, where do you read about faith, repentance, baptism, and receiving the Holy Ghost in the Old Testament? Yeah. So, it's plain. just such a beautiful list well, here. Well, it's also the, it is plain, but it's also precious. So we've got one more verse, because so we just read verse 19, and then by verse 21, he says he's done, right? Verily, verily, I say unto you, this is my gospel. So there's one missing from the list, and we've got one more verse. So let's find the missing item, but let's notice what he repeats. He's already repeated repentance. He's repeated endure to the end. So now, here is the deal in one verse. Now this is the commandment. Repent, all ye ends of the earth, and come unto me. There's a hint there of faith, right? Come unto me seems to be a hint there of the item of faith. And be baptized in my name. So repent, come unto me, and be baptized, that you may be sanctified by the reception of, here we go, here's the fourth item on the list. Be sanctified by the reception of the Holy Ghost. 
And then if you do that, you will stand spotless before me. I would suggest in all its simplicity and all its beauty, the gospel of Jesus Christ is simply you're going to be resurrected and stand before God on judgment day. And because of the gift of Jesus' atonement, if you have faith, repent all your days, make and keep covenants with God like baptism, renewing them frequently in the sacrament, adding to them the covenants of the temple, and then follow the dictates of the Holy Ghost, which will come into you and sanctify you. And if that's how you live your life, if you live a life of faith and repentance and covenant keeping and following the messages that come through the Holy Ghost, you will be guiltless because you will be washed and have no spots on judgment day. That is the essence of the gospel. It is no bigger than that. It is no smaller than that. Everything else fits into that paradigm. What you need to do is have faith in Jesus. Repent daily, constantly. Make and keep covenants like baptism and temple covenants. And follow the promptings of the Holy Ghost who will sanctify you and lead you. And if that's the life you live, if you endure to the end doing those things, the promise is you will be guiltless, washed, and spotless on Judgment Day. Don't make the gospel anything more than that. Why we do missionary work is because it's part of our covenants, it's part of our faith. And we desire to help other people know the gospel so that they can be guiltless and washed. Why do we build temples? Because it's where we make covenants, and covenants are part of this. Why do we have Relief Society activities? It really boils down to faith, repentance, baptism, and getting the Holy Ghost. We read the scriptures to get the Holy Ghost into my life so that I repent and keep my covenants. If you begin to see everything we do in the gospel, in the church, as related to this simple list of faith, repentance, baptism, the gift of the Holy Ghost for sanctification and enduring to the end, everything we do fits there. The word of wisdom fits there. Keeping the Sabbath day holy fits there. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it is beautifully simple and simply beautiful in Philippians. We read this as well. So if you go to Philippians chapter 2, one of the things I like to teach when I talk about the gospel is that the gospel is the good news, and it it comes from the word in the New Testament, agalos, which is just two words. If you've ever heard the word like euphonics, that word, that stem of that is good. And so that word in the New Testament is always attached to other things like Good news. So, you, good, agalos. That's where we get, it, it kind of morphs into evangelists or evangelon, the, the good news. And agalos is like where we get the word angel or messenger. So, it's the good message of Jesus, of what he did. And so, the gospel is what Jesus did. But I think if all we do is focus on that and we don't ask ourselves, well, why did he do it? I think it's paired with what he did, but it's also what he can do in us. 
I just like to teach this when I teach about the gospel, and it's Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. So at the very beginning, the first few verses in Philippians 2, we have Jesus, who's with God, but he came down. He had no reputation, and he took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And so to me, the gospel is, okay, Jesus came down, and then verse 8, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So he is obedient to his father. He died on the cross. Wherefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. Wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So that's kind of what Bryce has been talking about. It's work. Doing and following Jesus, coming unto him, and when he said faith, the root of that word, it's a word that's translated throughout the New Testament as faith and belief. The word is pistis, but what that word means is it's this reciprocal trust. It's the foundation of all relationships are built on trust. And so when Jesus says, come unto me, that is faith, and that is work. It takes work to follow Jesus. For it is God, verse 13, which worketh in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. Do all things without murmurings. Verse 15, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye, and here it is again, shine as lights in the world. To me, the shining ones are those that are spotless. And so that's the invitation, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ. That's the gospel. He came down, he was obedient unto death, the death of the cross, but it's what he can do in us. And so I really like this. I also want to just go back a couple verses in 35, 27, and just take a look at the foreshadowing in verse 11 and 12, where Jesus says, it's my church if it's built on my gospel, but some people, in the middle of verse 11, he says, verily I say, they will have joy in their works for a season. Some people are going to be built upon the works of men. And Jesus says, by and by, when the end cometh, they are hewn down and cast into the fire, from whence there is no return, for their works do follow them. For it is because of their works that they are hewn down. Therefore, remember the things that I have told you. To me, those two verses kind of foreshadow what's going to happen to the Nephites. It's a sad story. This does not end well for these guys. And Jesus is standing there saying, you know what? If you're going to do the works of men, you're going to have joy for a season, but it's not going to be something that's going to hold out, which kind of reminds me of this conversation that this Jewish fellow has in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 5, there's a bunch of people that come to this wise old sage, Gamaliel, and they say, what are we supposed to do with these Jewish people that are saying that Jesus is the Messiah? Like, we don't like them. We don't like this message. And I love his response where he says, here's the deal, guys. And you can read this in Acts 5.39. He says, first of all, don't mess with them, because here's the deal. If their message is true, there's nothing you can do to stop it, and it's of God. 
And if it's not true, it will come to naught. Yeah, it's just not, nothing's going to happen. And so I think sometimes, and this is just me, I, sometimes I really struggle with things or I, I, get kind of, I get kind of upset because of the turmoil of our life. And I think sometimes I just need to pause and just realize Gamaliel's counsel holds for me, Mike Day, and say, Mike, just chill out. Here's the deal. If it's of God, it'll grow. And if it isn't, It'll come to naught. Yeah. That's just a powerful message. I think as followers of Christ, sometimes it's really hard because we see all this injustice. And I think God is acknowledging right there in those two verses, hey, there's going to be injustice, but it's not going to last forever. So just a powerful message. But I love the gospel. I love the message of the name of the church. And I just think, to me, it's as big of an issue that they don't fight about it. You can see Jesus going, you guys, seriously, stop fighting. It's not worth the fight. Yeah. Because it's a no-brainer. Yeah. Now, before we leave that, let me take you to the Doctrine and Covenants, and I want to show that same pattern, that the gospel is faith, repentance, baptism, Holy Ghost, endure to the end. Start in Doctrine and Covenants section 20. Now, section 20 is the constitution of the church. So we should find this list in section 20. So notice, it all starts in verse 17. There is a God in heaven, framer of heaven and earth. He created man, male, and female. So there's a creation. Verse 20 talks about the fall. So these are the tenets of our belief. God, the creation, the fall. Starting in verse 21, it talks about the only begotten Son. 22, he suffered temptations but gave no heed. He was crucified, died, and rose again the third day. Now guess what we find in the next few verses? that as many as would believe. And that's interchangeable with faith. Faith, and be baptized in his holy name, and endure to in the faith to the end. There's three of the five. And then if you jump down to verse 27, as well as those who should come after, who should believe in the gifts and callings of God by the Holy Ghost, which beareth record. And then he sums it up in verse 29. And we know that all men must repent and believe on the name of Jesus Christ, and worship the Father in his name, and endure in faith on his name to the end. So right there, the tenets of our faith in the constitution of the church, section 20, there was an atonement, and if you have faith, repent, make covenants, follow the Holy Ghost, endure to the end, you will be, verse 30, justified, and verse 31, sanctified on judgment day. So there it is again. Now turn to section 39. Let's do it one more time. Section 39, verse 6. He's going to do it all in one verse. This is my gospel. Repentance and baptism by water, and then cometh the baptism of fire and the Holy Ghost, even the Comforter. It's that same list. This is my gospel. Repentance, baptism, Holy Ghost. One more. Turn to section 138, which talks about Joseph F. Smith's vision of the spirit world. What do we do in the spirit world? Notice verse 32, section 138, verse 32. Thus was the gospel preached to those who had died in their sins without a knowledge of the truth. So what exactly was preached to the dead? Verse 33, ready to see our list? These were taught faith in God, repentance from sin, 
vicarious baptism for the remission of sins, the gift of the Holy Ghost by the laying on hands, and all other principles of the gospel that were necessary for them to know. So what are the dead taught? Faith, repentance, baptism, gift of the Holy Ghost. Sometimes we get attacked for this. People say you believe that you have to work, even though we just read Philippians where Paul says you work out your salvation in other places it talks about this. And so I really love the next verse. If you go to the next verse, it says all the principles of the gospel that were necessary for them to know in order to qualify themselves that they might be judged. And I love preach my gospel. And I love how it's emphasized in preach my gospel that we qualify for these things. We qualify for the blessings of the atonement. If I earn a, there, there I go again, I say earn. If I receive a scholarship to go to school, and let's say it's a super expensive college, I qualify for the scholarship. I certainly didn't earn it. So Jesus earned it. He paid the price. But I love the distinction there, verse 34, to qualify themselves. So, so good. The gospel is so very simple. Take the deal. Yeah, but, but I love how you've illustrated it. It's not just in one spot. It's in a bunch of spots. It, take the deal. And don't make more of the gospel than Jesus does. If you pick any aspect of the church, say word of wisdom, for example, why obey the word of wisdom? You can tie it back to these five things. Word of wisdom. The word of wisdom is not necessarily just a law of health. It's a means of revelation. And so it's getting the promptings of the Holy Ghost. It's part of a covenant that I've made to obey. So live the gospel, take the deal, and you'll be guiltless, washed, and spotless on Judgment Day. The end of this chapter is kind of sad. In verse 31, Jesus tells him at the end of 27, none of you guys are going to be lost. This generation is going to be good. Verse 32, but then he says, it's sorrow with me because of the fourth generation. And he says, you're going to sell me for silver and gold. And he just gives them this prediction, this prophecy that, hey, where's your treasure? The fourth generation is going to lose it. And then he talks about entering in at this straight gate. This is filled with temple imagery about asking, seeking, knocking, entering the straight gate and coming into life, the, the path that leads to life. And so that's the invitation. That's the deal on the table. And then before we slide downhill, we get the 28th chapter. And the 28th chapter, I got to tell you, Bryce, I love doing what you say, how you talk about connecting doctrinal dots. And I remember I taught this one time in a class, and the lesson just fell flat because the whole lesson was about, aren't these facts really wonderful? And we list them on the board, and there are like 10 really cool facts about translated beans. And at the end of the lesson, I remember just going, okay, so you talked about some really cool things. But what's the point? And then I remember asking myself, why, why would Mormon put this in here? I mean, I've never, at least that I know of, I've never met a translated being. This is cool. I really like it. But A, why did Mormon put it in here? And B, what's the point? Like, how is it relevant? And so I thought we could talk about that, right? I don't know if in this podcast we're going to go through all the 10 points of what translated beings do and, or if we're going to draw the distinction between transfiguration and translated. I don't know if any of that stuff's even relevant. So from a relevance perspective... I'm going to pitch it to you, and then I'm going to give you kind of what I take out of this. Maybe we can combine these two ideas and just come away with some relevance here. Okay, so I think one of the most relevant parts of this story is to see in their desires a message. 
So the nine of the Nephite apostles wanted what Peter wanted in the New Testament and and the other disciples as well. And so they speak up in verse 2 and say, We desire that after we have lived into the age of man, that our ministry, wherein thou hast called us, may have an end, that we may speedily come unto thee in thy kingdom. In other words, I want to live a good life, do the things that you've asked me to do, and then go to the celestial kingdom. And Jesus says in verse 3, blessed are ye because ye desired this thing of me. He says of Peter in section 7, that is a good desire. So let's be clear. If your desire is to live a good life and then go to the celestial kingdom, that is a good thing. And Jesus would say, blessed are you. But then the, the three come forward. They don't dare speak, and he, he knows what their thoughts are, and he says, verse 6, Behold, I know your thoughts, and you have desired the thing which John, my beloved, who was with me in my ministry before I was lifted up by the Jews, desired of me. Therefore, now let's go back to the, let's go to their desire. End of verse 9, what was their desire? They desired, for ye have desired that ye might bring the souls of men unto me while the world shall stand. That was their desire. And Jesus says in verse 7, more blessed are you when your focus is on other people's salvation. In section 7, which is about John and Peter and this same topic, he says that John's desire was a greater desire. And here he says that they were more blessed. So I think the Savior is saying, look, there's nothing wrong with being focused on your salvation in wanting to live a good life and then go to the celestial kingdom. Blessed are you, but more blessed are those who focus on other people's salvation. Bryce, I think that's so important. I'm just going to read that verse. I think this is worth reading. So section 7, verse 5 of the Doctrine and Covenants. I say unto thee, Peter, this was a good desire, but my beloved, meaning John, has desired that he might do more or a greater work yet among men than what he has before done. And that brings us to 35, 28, verse 7, where it says, therefore, more blessed are ye. I think we miss those little words. The little word more, you can kind of miss it and get caught up in what do translated beings do. But I think that's a relevant application. And it's just, it's so important. And by the way, as Latter-day Saints, we stand alone in all of Christianity talking about this idea of who John is and what he did. And we're going to talk about legends in a minute. There's lots of legends associated with him. But here it is in our canonized scripture in 3528 and Doctrine and Covenants section 7, very clear teaching of who John is and what he desired and what he did. So I like that. That's very relevant. And I think the whole rest of the chapter is simply that Jesus will help you do the greater things. If your desire is to save other people, then Jesus will facilitate that, and he will help that happen. So the whole point of the translated beings was so they could do the greater work. There is a secret that gods know, and that is that the greatest source of happiness is by focusing on other people's happiness. To focus on your happiness, to focus on your salvation is a good thing, not something we should ever be embarrassed about. But to be focused on other people's happiness and other people's salvation is a better thing, and that is what God does. The reason he is our Heavenly Father is because his greatest desire is to bring us happiness and save us. 
And so I love that. You have desired, and more blessed are you, because you want a greater work. And that is focusing on other people's salvation. So I think, to me, I think that, Mike, is the number one takeaway from Third Nephi, this whole story about the translation. I love it. I want to geek out a little bit. So first of all, here we go. In the 28th chapter, uh, Mormon in verse 24 was like, I was going to give you their names, but the Lord told me, you know what? I'm not allowed to do that. But then he talks about some of his questions. I inquired of the Lord and the Lord told me more about their changes. And that's in the 37th and 38th verse and the 39th verse where he says their change wasn't equal to the change that will take place at the last day. So they're kind of in this state between mortality and immortality and notice what he says about them in the 18th verse. This much I know according to the record which has been given. So they wrote the record, and then he says they went forth and they ministered to people. That's verse 18. But then he talks about four things that people do to them. And this is because the culture, the civilization we're going to talk about in a minute is just going to fall apart. So he says in verse 19, they were thrown in prison. Verse 20, he says that these three Nephites, these translated beings, were cast down into the earth. Verse 21, they were cast into a furnace. And then finally, verse 22, they were cast into a den of wild beasts. I remember reading that going, wow, these people must really be wicked that they're doing all these things to these people. And then I thought a little bit more about some of these these ideas. The idea of being cast into prison, we read this all over the place in the Book of Mormon where the servants of God are cast into prison. But then I thought about what is being cast into the earth like? And the, the thought occurred to me, It's kind of like Joseph, how he was cast into the earth. In other words, these guys are kind of like types of Christ or types of Jesus or prophetic patterns, as it were. Jesus was cast into the earth. His body was put in a tomb. They were cast into a furnace. We read about this in the Daniel narrative. Or the wild beast, same thing. And then if you go to the book of 4th Nephi, it's interesting that he leaves one out. And I don't, you know, I don't know if this means anything, so I'm just throwing this out there. But if you go to the 30th verse of 4th Nephi, it says that they were cast into prison, and the prison was rent in twain. And then verse 32, they were cast into furnaces of fire. And then verse 33, dens of wild beasts. Like I said, I don't know if this means anything, but if you add up these, it's like seven. It's very interesting how we get these repeated orders of seven in the text. Also, it talks about this when they talk about the tribes, the tribal divisions in 4th Nephi in verse 37 and 38 are, it's a series of seven. So like I said, I don't know if it means anything, but I just found that interesting that Mormon kind of orders it that way. I want to read this. This is from Clyde Williams, and I think this is a really good way that we can apply this. He says, people often wonder whether there are people being translated today, and if not, why? The same question may have come to the mind of Joseph Smith as he translated the Book of Mormon. Even more likely, the question could have come as he worked on the inspired revision of the book of Genesis in 1830 and 1831, as he read of Enoch and his people being caught up into heaven, and later of others who developed the faith of Enoch and who were taken up into Zion, even down to the days of Melchizedek. The question must have come, and we have no record of any response by the prophet as to why people are not translated today. And his silence on the question may be answer enough. However, on this issue, Elder McConkie, he said this, After the days of Melchizedek, except in a few isolated instances, those of Moses and Elijah, Alma the son of Alma, John the beloved, and the three Nephites, they're the only ones we know about, except in these cases, each involving a special purpose. And so I think that's the kind of the point that Elder McConkie's driving home is these individuals had a special purpose. And then he, and then he continues, 
the Lord ceased translating faithful people. Rather, they were permitted to die and go into the spirit world there to perform the ever-increasing work needed in that sphere. So that's kind of his take on this. And can I throw in one verse? One thing we need to understand is that today, in our day, what we need most is not to be translated. I love the very end of section 138. I beheld that the faithful elders of this dispensation, when they depart from mortal life, continue their labors in the preaching of the gospel of repentance and redemption through the sacrifice of the only begotten Son among those who are in darkness and under the bondage of sin in the great world of the spirits of the dead. The great need we have is to go preach to the dead so that we can save the dead. That is the need that God has among the Latter-day Saints, which would explain why fewer and fewer people are being translated today, because we need them in the spirit world. Yeah. And then Clyde Williams continues, he says, there's much we don't know, but for that which we do understand, we should be grateful. What personal lesson can we learn from the lives of these Nephite disciples? Of the many ideas that could be given, he's going to give us two. He says, first, it should be our desire and design to strive to bind Satan in our lives. For when Satan is bound in a single home, when Satan is bound in a single life, the millennium has already begun in that home, in that life. President Kimball taught that. Third Nephi 28 and fourth Nephi emphasize that the three Nephites can't be touched by the temptations of Satan, and the only sorrow they feel is for the sins of the world. I think they are a model for us to try to strive towards. I certainly am not hitting the mark. I'm certainly falling short. But I think the invitation in 3 Nephi 28 is that we receive a change by the Spirit. And if you look in verse 30, it says, They are as the angels of God. And if they pray unto the Father in the name of Jesus, they can show themselves unto whatsoever man seemeth them good. Now, to me, the reason why they get that is because they just want to share the gospel. They want to go and preach to everyone the good news of Jesus. And my belief is if we have that as our prayer, I think we can be like that. I think we can. So that's his first thing. And then he says, second, we can and must do all that we can to bring souls unto Christ. This is the work of the translated Nephites, and this is our work too, which is going to kind of lead into a short geek out moment. I know this isn't in the scriptures, but I'd love to talk about uh, some of these traditions of John. So like I said, these are not canonized, but there are a bunch of traditions about John, the apostle, where he doesn't die. And as a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, I sure like the stories, and they kind of fit in a lot of our theology. So a couple of them are as follows. I don't know if this is like history, but these are the stories that are told. This is told by Tertullian. We'll source all this in the show notes. But it's in a text called The Prescription of Heretics, chapter 36. And in this story, Tertullian talks about the emperor brings in John. And John, according to the text, is kind of a a troublemaker. And he brings him before the Porta Latina at Rome. And he puts him in a vat of boiling oil. And as John goes in, everyone's like, well, what's he going to do? Is he going to struggle? Is he going to freak out? And and this is just a beautiful story because he's going into the oil. And the whole time he's teaching them about Jesus. The guys that are tying him up, he's like, let me tell you about Jesus. So they drop him into the oil. And while he's in the boiling oil, he's testifying of Jesus and the power of the redemption and the resurrection. And according to the legend, it says that he doesn't die. And all of the audience there, everybody is converted to Jesus. They're like, we've got to know more about this. And because they can't kill him, he's exiled. And so that's kind of the preface to the book of Revelation. Now, like I said, I don't know if these stories are true, but they're just so cool. 
Here's another one by Eusebius in Church History. John meets this guy who's kind of a he's kind of a ruffian, and he converts him. He teaches him the gospel, and then John goes away because he's out preaching or whatever. And years go by, and this kid grows up, and he first is converted to Jesus, but then he falls away in his faith, and he kind of becomes a thug and gets involved in a life of crime. And when John comes back to the church, he asks the bishop, tell me about this guy. And the bishop says, you know what? He is a criminal now. And John hunts him down and finds him and says, you got to come back. If I have to die to bring you back, we've got to bring you back into the fold. And it's just a beautiful story about how John went after the lost sheep. And it's like I said, it's one of these legends. Here's another one. This is a great story. Now, this is actually put into a painting by a guy whose name I can't pronounce. He painted it in 1390, and we'll link this. So in this story, there's this pagan priest that comes up to John, and his name is Aristodemus. It's kind of like Nostradamus, but it's Aristodemus. He comes to him and says, listen, John, I've heard a lot about you. I myself am a pagan priest, but here's the deal. These two men are condemned to death, and they've committed crimes. We're going to kill them. After we kill him with this poison, if you drink the poison, I'll believe in Jesus. And so they give the poison to the two guys, they die, and then John drinks the poison. And in the story, you know where I'm going with this, right, Bryce? What happens? He doesn't die. He doesn't die, right. He doesn't die. But do die. they believe in Jesus? Do they keep their word? <laughs> well, no, he doesn't. He actually says, okay, well, maybe you got lucky. Like, <laughs> you don't die, so here's the deal. Maybe I'll believe in Jesus if you do this. Can you do this, John? Can you raise those two guys from the dead? And so John takes off his cloak and he puts it on the two men and he commands them in the name of Jesus to rise. And they do. Now we don't have the rest of the story, but it's stories like this that I'm like, okay, even if they're not true, these stories are coming from somewhere. We have all these stories of he has power over death. He has power over boiling oil. He doesn't die, right? And there aren't stories like that for Peter or for Paul, but there are stories about John like that. Interesting. And in our theology, it's John that lives beyond his normal years. John is still alive today. What do we do with it? So last one, last one. So he builds a church up in Ephesus, and the legend goes that he takes Mary the mother of Jesus, with him to Ephesus. And you can actually go to a location where supposedly the house that he built for Mary. Now, do we know? We don't know. But supposedly the house that he built for Mary, you can go visit it. And in a Greek manuscript called the Acts of John, it's an apocryphal text that talks about John. And it ends with John kind of getting to an old age and he digs a hole, like a little trench in the ground, and he puts some garments down and he says, I'm going to lay down and I'm going to go to heaven. And in the Acts of John, he does, he dies. But in one of the manuscripts, it reads as follows. Quote, we brought a linen cloth and we spread it upon him and we went into the city. So his followers kind of go away knowing that he's going to lay down and go to sleep. And then it reads, on the day following, we went forth and we found not his body for it was translated by the power of our Lord Jesus unto whom be the glory. Now, what do you do with that? Lots of fun. So anyway, I love I love getting into the weeds on some of these stories. And like I said, we're the that I know of, we're the only tradition that has canonized text talking about John's translation. The heart of this is: Do you want to bind Satan in your life? You can do it. You can pray for that power. And then, secondly, I love that one little word, and that word was more. And that's verse more blessed are verse you. seven. More blessed are you. I think that's the relevance. Yep.
But there is one thing. Before we leave 3 Nephi 28, this is the third time Jesus does something one by one. And I want to point all three of those out. In chapter 11, going back to 3 Nephi chapter 11, verse 15, he allows the multitude to feel the nail marks in his hands one by one. And then in chapter 17, he blesses and ministers the children one by one. That's verse 20, 21. And now in 3 Nephi 28, he gathers his disciples, his leaders, and he pulls them aside one by one, asking, what is it that you desire of me after I have gone to the Father? Three times, Jesus pulls a group and ministers to them one by one. That's an interesting manifestation of his character. Then we talked about this, that Jesus is a one-by-one God. But one insight I would like to share, especially with church leaders, if I were a bishop or a church leader, I would see that pattern as very significant. Jesus has a one-by-one relationship with the congregation as a whole. And then in chapter 17, he has a one-by-one relationship with the children, with the youth of the church. And then in chapter 28, he has a one-by-one relationship with the leaders of the church. I love that pattern that Jesus is, in general, a one-by-one God. But first, his whole congregation, then the children, then the leadership. And I think he's trying to teach those who lead this church. This is how you lead. This is how you lead. You lead by doing it one by one to the whole congregation. To the degree you can, you one by one to the whole congregation. You need a one by one relationship with everyone. But then after sacrament meeting was over, you know where I'd run? I'd run down to the primary and I'd run to the youth groups. And that's what we see most bishops doing. They seek a one by one relationship with the youth of the church. And then after the meeting was over, or maybe before the meeting was over, I'd have a one-by-one with the leaders of the church, the ward council. And you see that pattern in Jesus, one-by-one to the congregation, one-by-one to the children, and one-by-one to the leadership of the church. I just wanted to point that out. It's so good. And if you're writing this down at home, I'm going to give you the references. It's 1115, 3511, 3521, and 3528-1. To me, that is a great catch of just noticing that. It's, it's a very subtle thing, but it teaches leadership. And I just got to say this, Joseph's a young man when this is translated. Like He hasn't been to these leadership and, seminars on how to work with organizations, and yet there it is. It's right there. And no one in his day was ministering one by one. That wasn't the way they did it back then. And Joseph is writing Jesus' character into this book, saying he ministered one by one, first to the multitude, then to the youth, and then to the leaders of the church. It's just a powerful teaching, and it's just so subtle. So there's some really relevant seven thirty five twenty eight. You can nerd out on all the 10 different things about the, what translated beings do and are, but now we're going to go to 29 basically the summary that, hey, when you get this, when you read this account of Jesus, it's a sign that the Latter-day work has begun. And he said that before, too. He said, when the Book of Mormon comes forth, you know this is going to happen. I think the the key here is going to be verse 1, where he says, we're going to get to the restoration of the lands of their inheritance. That's going to happen. So to me, I, I do see this politically. 
that the nation of Israel being put back together is part of part of this. Now they're physically gathered, are they spiritually gathered? You know, we can have that conversation, but I think that's part of it. And then there's some woes in the 29th chapter, a bunch of woes, woe unto those that deny the revelations of the Lord or that, you know, want to get gain or say that Jesus doesn't do miracles. Verse 8 of 29th chapter, don't make game of the Jews, don't attack them. God knows who they are. And then the 30th chapter is this idea of turn. And that word is shuv. And that word means come home, turn, or repent. It's the same word. So in verse 2, the correct concept of shuv is right there. Turn, all you Gentiles, from your wicked ways and repent of your evil doings. And so they do. And then there's a laundry list of all the things. And notice idolatries and murders and all those things. Some of the worst parade of horribles. If you turn from those, look what it says. You may receive a remission of your sins and be filled with the Holy Ghost, that you may be numbered with my people who are of the house of Israel. So this is an invitation, and it's also a list of the worst parade of horribles because the atonement is greater than any evil that mankind can perpetuate. It's an invitation at the end of this, and it's also, in my opinion, it's a message to these people that reject Jesus. I think the Book of Mormon is foreshadowing the, the horrible things that are going to happen because then we get to Fourth Nephi. And in 4th Nephi, there's kind of these two ideas, isn't there? There's the, how do we build Zion? But then we also see the adversary's playbook on how to deconstruct it. So we have the building and then the demolishing. Which to the Latter-day Saints is extremely significant because we need to build it in spite of the efforts to destroy it. So if we know how to destroy Zion and how to build Zion, it'll help us build it the right way. So in 4th Nephi, they build Zion and then they lose it. And we ought to pay attention to both of those. So let's start with how to build Zion. You could make a wonderful list here on how to build Zion. And that's the first 20 or so verses. And then the last 20 or 30 verses are how to destroy Zion. I want to point out, I watch for repetitions. That's how I read the scriptures. I watch for patterns and repetitions. And this catches my attention on how to build Zion. Verse 2, no contentions. Verse 13, no contentions. Verse 15, no contentions. Verse 18, no contentions. What's it trying to say? So we can talk about no manner of ites, and I know that's a significant. There were no murderers, no robbers, no manner of ites, but they were in one. But I think what I hear coming out loud and clear is if you want to build Zion, you need to overcome contention. And that starts in my heart and in my home. I need to overcome contention, division and contention. Then you can add other things to the list. For example, verse 2, the people were all converted unto the Lord upon all the face of the land. Now, we talk in our society about socialism trying to make people united and one, or communism at its very heart is trying to make people equal and give poor people bread, and we were equalizing everyone. The problem is socialism and communism will never do what consecration can do because of verse 2. If you take Jesus out of the equation, it often breaks down. The reason it will work in the millennium, the reason we will live as a united society and there will be no poor among us, is because Jesus is part of that. All the people were converted unto the Lord. That's why consecration works. 
One time I taught this in class, Bryce, I had a student that raised his hand and he said, Brother Day, no way am I going to take, and this kid was a hard worker. He got up really early in the morning and milked cows. And this kid said, there's no way I'm going to do that. And I said, why? And he says, I'm not getting up at four in the morning so I can give my money to somebody else. And I just paused and I said a very short prayer. I said, Heavenly Father, tell me what to say. And this thought came in my head. And I asked him this question. What if it was your grandma? What if your grandma didn't have food in her fridge? Would you go over to her house and see how she was doing and take care of her and make sure she had food? And he said, he said, without hesitation. In other words, when we're tied to Jesus, I think we see each other different. Yeah. That was just kind of the point. If you take Jesus out of the equation, it just doesn't work like consecration is going to work. Like we saw Enoch's people, like we will see in the millennium, like these Nephites accomplish at least for 200 years. It's because they were all converted unto the Lord upon the face. Verse 3, there there they are, living the law of consecration. They had all things in common. By the way, I think that's more than just money. Yeah. I think that's our time and how we take care of each other. And I really think that this society, it's not about money. No. It's about particular care. In other words, Zion doesn't build itself, and it isn't, Zion isn't the absence of sin. It's not me sitting in my house and I'm not sinning. I like to think of it as a tree. We have to pay attention. We have to prune it. We have to grow it. Or a garden, you have to weed it. I had this tree, this, I don't know if I talked about this before, but I had this peach tree. And right around July in Utah, there's this peach borer bug that will come and it will lay little hatchlings and it will, these little teeny little worms will bore into the the root of the peach tree and suck it out and kill it. And and one of the ways you know it's happening, you remember ever playing with rubber cement as a kid? Yeah. And then you ever pour it on the table and then watch it dry? Yeah. Imagine a big glob of that dried up and it's kind of sticky and tacky. Well, I had a bunch of that kind of goo around the base of my tree and I didn't know what it was and I didn't think about it. But then two weeks went by and all the leaves fell off my tree and my tree, it's the middle of July, right? And I'm thinking, I'm watering it, what's going on? And I start to talk to people and I find out what happened. And I go and I I dig out all that icky and I find the the critters in there and I poison them and I kill them and I don't know if my tree's going to make it. But my point is, Zion's kind of like that. If I don't pay attention, if I'm not actively cultivating it, right? It's not enough that I have my sprinklers hitting it with water or that I'm fertilizing. I've got to pay attention. And I think that's what 4th Nephi is inviting us to do. And don't you think, Bryce, that maybe the model for this is our own home? And I I, I keep thinking about that 2nd Nephi chapter 5. They did live after the manner of happiness, but man, they were working hard. And so they do work. Look at verse 7. They build buildings. They, build, they rebuild Zarahemla. And they work. It's this constant cultivation, isn't it? Because, verse 15, the love of God did dwell in their hearts. There was no envies, no strifes, no tumults, no horridoms, nor lying, nor murders, nor any manner of lasciviousness. And the idea is it's because God is in their hearts. When God is in our whole society's heart, all those things naturally go away. But sometimes we, we think, well, I'm waiting for the other guy. I had a married couple I was working with one time, and the husband said to me, I will be nice to her when, when she, she's nice. That's right. And what do you think I told him? <laughs> she's probably waiting for the same thing. <laughs> yeah. It's a so, very terrestrial attitude. I'll be nice to you when you're nice to me. And the celestial attitude is, no, you just be nice. Yeah. You always be nice. You don't return evil for evil 
and be fair, you be nice. And that's how they do it. The whole society is filled with the love of God. When everyone loves God, we will live in Zion. By the way, 17 is a really cool verse with teenagers. Because I think teenagers, we draw lines and we say, well, you're this or you're that. Or it kind of reminds me of that line from the movie where she says, Ferris loves everybody, the skaters, the dweebs, the motorheads. Well, why? Because he doesn't see him as ites. And I think Jesus doesn't see us that way either. Anyway, that's a fun verse, verse 17. So that's how to build it. You get Jesus into your heart, and there's no contention. But given that repetition that I pointed out, no contention, no contention, no contention, guess what's going to tear them apart? And you can just see it happening. Starting in verse 23, they grow rich because of their prosperity. And then verse 24, here we go lifted up in pride. It's the pride cycle that we talked about back in Helaman. and come back. As soon as you are prosperous, rather than being humble and grateful, when prosperity leads to pride, we're headed in the wrong direction. So they're rich in verse 23, which leads to pride in 24. Now verse 26, they're divided into classes. 27, many churches. And then 29, churches that deny Christ. Verse 30, they're led by priests and false prophets to build up many churches that do after the manner of iniquity, which leads us to 38, they dwindle in unbelief because they did willfully rebel against the gospel of Christ, and they did teach their children that they should not believe. And then by verse 40, the more wicked part of the people did wax strong and became exceedingly more numerous than the people of God. There's a real turn in verse 41, yeah, and that's when the Nephites join in. It's one thing when the culture goes bad, but when the Nephites go bad, verse 41, when they start going there, now we're done. And so if you get to verse 44, it says, From this time the disciples began to sorrow for the sins of the world, and then it even says that nobody's doing good by the end except for the disciples. Only those guys are the ones that are doing good. That's verse 46. And there's silver and gold again, verse 46. Earlier, Jesus said that, you know, they're going to sell me for silver and gold. Well, that's what happens. So long story short, when the whole society is filled with the love of God, they live this Zion life, and no one's hungry, and no one's poor, and everyone has what they need, and they're safe, and you can let your children go out, and you don't need to lock your door, and you could leave a dollar bill on your dashboard with your windows open. But then when the love of God is replaced by the love of ourselves and pride, then all of a sudden they turn away, and the whole society ends up being wicked. I kind of do some math on this, and how it depends on how you read 4th Nephi. So you could read it and say, hey, it really starts in verse 20 with a small part revolting, or you could go down a couple of verses later where it says in the year 210 it goes bad. But however you slice this, whether they start going bad in the year 200 or 210, it's only in a short manner of time before the Nephites are pulled in. It's about 50 or 60 years. And so in 260, the Nephites get pulled into this. It takes some time, but it, it kind of it doesn't take that long. I mean, 50 years isn't that long. Now, I don't know if this is on purpose. I don't know if this is just a coincidence. I'm not making any declarations, but I just have to say, I find it interesting how the record keepers' names are kind of tied into this. So Nephi gives it to this guy named Amos, and the way you pronounce it, if you're reading it in the, in the Old Testament, it would be Amos, and the word, it comes from a stem word, a verb, which means to be heavy burdened. 
And if you just kind of go through this and you read when Amos gets the record is right about the time when they start to fall. So the name of the guy is heavy burdened and then he gives it to his son who has the same name. And then at the end, they give it to this guy by the name of Amaron. Amar means to speak or give a word, but it also is related to the idea of working with words. The devar is the, where the, where the words come forth and to Amar is to speak or to give a word. And so I think I like that. I think that's really kind of cool. It's tied to the Holy of Holies and it's tied to the records. It could also be Am Aron. And Aron is what the Ark is called. And Am just means people of. So the people of the Ark, could it be that? Well, once again, we're in this idea of holiness. But Amron is going to be the one who's going to be the link between the Nephite kings and giving it to Mormon, which we read in the Book of Mormon. But this is a happy chapter, but it's also a really sad chapter. And I really like the first 19 verses. I find it interesting that when everything is going good, I mean, we have 200 years of peace and we have 19 verses. I wonder why we don't have more. Maybe, maybe it has to do with the sacredness of it. I mean, why don't we have chapter upon chapter about Enoch and Zion being built? And thankfully we have the book of Moses, but it just seems like the book of Mormon is written to us because Mormon says, okay, I've seen your day. And you're not gonna you're not gonna have a lot of this fourth Nephi stuff. That's gonna come after Jesus comes. You're gonna live in this day of how do I follow Jesus in the midst of all this social chaos? And so maybe that's why the Book of Mormon's written the way it is. I mean, I've so often may- wondered why are we only getting 19 verses on? This? So maybe that's our millennial scripture. Maybe we'll get how to build a millennial society when we're actually ready to build a millennial society. Maybe just maybe that's the scripture of the lost ten tribes that we will get when it's time to actually build Zion. Point, again, I don't mean to speculate as much as I just simply say the Lord will give us the tools that we need to do the job he's asked us to do. And the Book of Mormon is absent. It's blank on how to build and live in a millennial society. This book was written to those who prepare for the millennium. We'll need another book to live in the millennium. And so this is our book, and we need to love it. And part of living it is preparing for that millennial state. And that's what Fourth Nephi is trying to help us do, get there. And we've got to work on no contention, because we live in a society filled with contention. I like that you drew that out. It's not just one spot. It's just repeated. And I think that message is as relevant today as it ever has been. For the rest of the Book of Mormon— we have Mormon, Ether, and Moroni. Ether is a flashback. It's kind of, in my opinion, the Book of Mormon in miniature. And then we basically have Mormon and the, the deconstruction of the society in detail in technicolor. And then Moroni writes some and stuff. And we do it again with the Jaredites. Yeah. And from here on out, it's almost, you know, it's almost like those marathons where the last two miles are downhill. This is the last two miles. So with that, we thank you for listening and have a wonderful week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.